Hello and thanks for tuning in. This is the radio ministry of Grace Community Church in Jefferson City, Missouri. Please open up your Bibles and join us. Here's Pastor Dennis Helton. Good morning. Again. The great reformer Martin Luther once wrote that there are three conversions that are necessary. The conversion of the heart, the conversion of the mind, and the conversion of the purse. Of these three, it may well that we find the conversion of the purse to be the most difficult, he says. Uh, Charles Spurgeon wrote this. With some Christians, the last part of their nature that ever gets sanctified is their pockets. And once there was a uh, minister that was talking about a huge building project in their church, he stood up one Sunday, said to the congregation, I've got some good news and I've got some bad news. Good news is that the church has all the money it needs to complete this project. The bad news is that it's still in your wallets. <laughs> Thank you, guys. <laughs> Another guy said, and who wrote a book, he heard the story of a miser, and he said that the pastor says that I ought to give until it hurts. But for me, it hurts to even think about it. And so there we go. And that's the last of my funny lines that I give, but... You can look all throughout through your Luthers and Spurgeons and all the way up to present time. Some of the, um, I guess you could say, the humorous moments about giving. But it's a serious thing, but we want to give, give of ourselves, give everything. We want to give scripturally. And that kind of giving is called grace giving. Giving by grace. And it's not tithing. The tithe thing was uh, done in, in the Old Testament in the law. Those were actually taxes. But it's something that comes out of grace. It overflows with liberality like the Macedonians, which is the really great example that Paul uses of giving. Because they gave not only with the ability they had, and they didn't have much ability because they were very poor, but they gave beyond their ability. They gave so much beyond their ability that they, they begged Paul that they could give more when it was almost to the point where they just didn't have anything left. Uh, Macedonians really were people that were truly in poverty. The church was in poverty. But it's really the best example of a church in giving. And at that area where they were at, it had been ravaged by wars and it was plundered by the Roman authority that was there, just wiped out their economy, and yet they gave beyond their ability. They are examples of grace giving, and that's what we want to feature on as we are in this uh, section. I'd like to suggest that uh, in the case of grace giving, that it would be its voluntary that it's according to gratitude. Uh, we do not give because we think we have to give, because we owe it. We owe it to God. We don't always give just 10% or 15% or 20% or 5%. 
In that case, uh, we look in the New Testament, uh, we see that it teaches a proportional giving. And there are some times when believers earnestly like to give and are able to give. And there are other times when the same believer would like to give and they're actually unable to give. Scripture lays no obligation in that sense for those people who are really suffering economically to even give. So uh, we may give the 10% or the 5% or the 20%. That's left for the guidance of the Holy Spirit. Let Him be your guide and uh, having an obedient response to Him. So we give to satisfy the heart of God because He's made our hearts right. We want to express devotion to Him. That's what we're doing here today. In, in, In our worship, we come as a congregation expressing our devotion how we love Him, how we want to obey Him, how we want to glorify Him, edify Him, to make Him high in our thinking, to give much of ourselves to Him. And so that is all behind uh, this and uh, as our devotion is concerned. It's time to be generous as God has blessed us very generously. He wants us out of gratitude as we have received that, to do that same kind of thing. What we're going to do is turn to three verses today in chapter 8, verses 7 through 9. We want to spend our time mainly on verse 9. And we sing that, how rich uh, a treasure we possess. And uh, that's a hymn, it's a new hymn by Matt Papa. And you're familiar with Matt Papa. And um, when I think of that, and you go right here into this verse 9, and you see the treasure, the, the richness of who Christ is, and then giving his richness to us that we would be rich, and he came poor to, to do that. Uh, quite an incredible thing. Now, what's happening in Corinth is Paul is writing a letter to them, And he's encouraging them to continue on with the collecting of the money that was going to go to the very poor in Jerusalem. For they had nothing there. And so to the Corinthians who first responded to this giving ministry that Paul and the apostles were doing and they were gathering and going to send it back to Jerusalem. As he did that, They were to respond. They started and they quit. They quit doing it. And so Paul sent Titus for a number of reasons. And uh, Titus came back reporting uh, that they had repented and what they had done. And then uh, um, he got good news. And so now he says, you know, I want to make sure that you are continuing on and completing what you had started. Um, By the way, when you think of Corinth, and then you uh, take this other church that he was using, the churches like uh, Philippi, uh, that was in Macedonia. Uh, You think of, uh, of course, Philippi, the Bereans, right? Uh, That whole area, they needed to give even out of their poorness And yet at the same time, they are a rival to Corinth, and Corinth is doing very well 
Thank you. They're doing economically uh, with their uh, kind of where their situation was at, close to the port and such, that they had a lot of travel and trade going there. They were doing very well. And they were the ones who now had quit giving, and they had the ability, and they could go beyond the ability even. And so uh, that's what Paul uses. I think that is, uh, as it's being inspired by the Spirit, uh, a tremendous um, way to encourage them on. And I got a feeling they must have come on through with that after that encouragement. Why don't we uh, get to the Word of God right now? Let's turn to chapter 8. Make sure that we're awake. Let's, uh, let's stand and uh, let's read this precious text that we have in verse 7, 8, and 9. But just as you abound in everything, as he writes to the Corinthians, in faith, and utterance, and knowledge, and in all earnestness, and in the love we inspired in you, see that you abound in this gracious work also. I'm not speaking this as a command, but as proving through the earnestness of others the sincerity of your love also. For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, That though he was rich, yet for your sake he became poor, so that you, through his poverty, might become rich. Father, we thank you for this text. May it remind us what you have given us, how you have made us rich in so many things. Lord, help us to understand this passage. Help us to understand in our giving of everything. For we want to be obedient to you to glorify your name. Now, give us the wisdom by the Holy Spirit to bring further truth and understanding to our minds. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Come here to feed off the word of God as we do every week. That's, That's what... Really, worship is focused on, isn't it? It's focused on the very Word of God. Now, as we get into Scripture, we get into the heart of it all. Our songs have been about the Word of God. Our prayers have been about the Word of God. The readings of Scripture, the response of readings, the confessions, they've all been dealing with the Word of God. Even the confession that we had this morning dealt with the Word of God specifically. So we get into verse 7. This is the challenge to the Corinthians. We're going to go in verse 7. We're going to divide this outline up really easy. It's it's dealing with the challenge to the Corinthians. Then in verse 8, it's going to be the human example of grace giving, that being the Macedonians. And then the third one, and uh, the one we want to spend most of our time on, is really the supreme example of Christ in his giving. He is the ultimate example, isn't he? So we start off with the challenge now to the Corinthians as he's already told about the Macedonians in the first six verses. It says, uh, but just as you abound in everything. They abounded in everything. Writing to the Corinthians. As you Corinthians continue to abound in all the things that God has given you, in the gifts that God has given you. And we have to remember back in 1 Corinthians, he mentioned that of them. Do you remember this? Chapter 1, starting at verse 5, he thanks them that God had given grace to them. And then in verse 5, that in everything you were enriched 
It's that word, in him. And he names some of the things that we see in our text today here. In all speech, and all knowledge, even as the testimony concerning Christ was confirmed in you, so that you are not lacking in any gift, awaiting eagerly the revelation of our Lord Jesus Christ. They had all the gifts there. Their church was very dynamic. They were blessed. They were blessed financially. They were blessed spiritually with all the gifts, how they had abused those gifts. And he had to write a section uh, starting at chapter 12, 13, and 14 on the gifts, the gifts that they had and how they had misused them, abused them. And he gives them right instruction on that. Corinthians, you know, is, is a, a matter of instruction very heartily that Paul gives them in uh, all those chapters. So anyway, there he said they abounded in that. Here in our second Corinthians, he says that again. But just as you abound in everything, in, and he names them here, in faith and in utterance and knowledge and earnestness and the love and such. Um, so there we have it. He says you, you have it all. It's all there. God gave it to you all. Uh, the word here is abounding. It's overflowing. You know, you have the cup full. It's overflowing. That's the thought uh, of what was happening in Corinth. Had God blessed them? Oh, you know they were very blessed. So he says, you're abounding in this. Now, I want you to abound in the love that's in this grace, that in giving to the poor in Jerusalem, that you would abound in that also. Pretty easy verse to really understand, isn't it? He uses the word faith. This would be their strong trust in God. They abound in that trusting in God. Uh, they abounded in their utterance, uh, logos, their doctrine. They abounded in their doctrine. Oh, they knew. Matter of fact, they had taken that, and we see another next word is knowledge, and had, had boasted in the knowledge that they had, uh, which wasn't uh, the right thing to do. But uh, this word utterance is used for the word of truth. It's used for the word of righteousness. The word of Christ, it's dealing with sound words, sound doctrine. They were solid. Why? Paul had preached and he had taught there for quite some time. Day and night he did. Next word is knowledge. That, that is understanding how doctrine applies. Not just knowing doctrine, but applying it to your life. That's how divine truth is applied to you. And then the earnestness, that's spude, it's eagerness, it's being diligent. They were very diligent, very eager to do something, very earnest in what they did. So they abounded in these things. In what? In faith, in utterance, knowledge. They abounded in earnestness. And in the love we inspired in you. They even abounded in the love that Paul inspired in them. They were abounding in that even. Matter of fact, it's interesting, Paul had to write chapter 13, dealing with love, right? 1 Corinthians 13, everybody knows that. So they needed to improve on their love, but they were still abounding in it. And, and you never can have enough of these, can you? Even though you're overflowing, you can run dry. You've got to constantly have that coming in there. So he says, okay, you abounded in, in all of this. Uh, you have love. You have agape. How, how did he inspire them? 
by preaching and teaching the Word of God. That's how they had the love. So truth and love come together. That was the example. So now he says, now, one thing I want you to do. I want you to abound in what? In giving. He says, now, you, you abound in all that. See that you abound in the gracious work, in this gracious work also. So that means they weren't abounding, and they are to abound in that, to match some of the other areas where they are abounding. He, he's very gracious in the words that he gives, isn't he? He says, but here, here's one thing I want you to do. I want you to step it up a little bit here. You overflow in all these other things. I want you to overflow in this one. It should go right along with everything else. So there's verse 7. Are we uh, moving speedily? Verse 8. I am not speaking this as a command, but as proving through the earnestness of others the sincerity of your love also. I'm not speaking this as a command. I'm not commanding you. This is called free will giving. And you know what I think of free will. But in giving, it is coming out of your own desire, out of your own will, your thinking. You're not told by anybody, but you do it uh, not according to legalism, not according to some command. It's never according to obligation. Some churches have an obligation that you have to give so much. But Paul says, it's not even that. I'm not commanding you. I'm not speaking this as a command. But as proving through the earnestness of others. And who would the others be? Well, we spent six verses on the Macedonians. That would be them. They were earnest, weren't they? I want you to prove that you have the same kind of earnestness. And here's how you can prove it. This is like the way that Paul appeals. It's not a command. But he says, I want you to be able to do what I know you can do. And, and it's like that. To prove your love. I want you to prove your love. It's a voluntary, free will offering. Through the earnestness of others, referring to the Macedonians. Through following their example. Following their very pattern Proving through the earnestness of others the sincerity of your love also. Is your love really sincere? Well, here's how you can prove it. By continuing on and getting that uh, completed. That work that you're doing, that gracious work. Um, the sincerity of your love also. The word uh, there is proving. Proving is uh, another word for testing. It's that word dakimazo. In the Greek, it really means to, to do a test in order to show what is genuine, to show what is really real. Do you think Paul thought they had some reality there, that there was some real sincerity? Yeah. But he wants it to be seen and proven. Well, how can they do that? It's an inward thing. Well, they have an opportunity to do it outwardly here. Through following the example that the Macedonians had, they can now prove that they are sincere too. Their love really is sincere. It's genuine. Um, the Corinthians had an opportunity to show this. They profess toward other believers that they have love, that they are sincere. They are going to prove that it's bona fide, that it is 
genuine. Giving is always the test of love. Giving verifies the level of your love. And giving can mean a lot of things, right? We're not just focusing on money. Paul doesn't even use the word money here. That's part of it, but it's many things. Giving yourself to the whole body of Christ, right? Giving uh, whatever is needed. Uh, giving is the test of your love. It's the level of, of your love. You can't love without giving. You know that? Because love means sacrificial giving. Agape is the very definition of that word. You cannot love without giving. The amount of your giving then expresses the amount of your what? Your love. If you give very little, you love little. If you give a lot, you love a lot. Like I say, remember, we're we're not talking about amounts of money. It is in proportion, proportion of what you have. And that can mean somebody could give just a few dollars, and that to them would be extreme much because all they have is a few dollars, right? So that's, that's the idea. Love is not measured by what we feel. That, of course, is the definition, I think, of our world today. Whether you love the Lord, whether you love His church, whether you love those in need, it's evident by your giving. The true test of sincere love is not your emotions. Don't gauge it on how you feel at the time because that will lie to you every time. The real test, it's not your emotions, not your feelings, it's your action. Uh, see what Peter had to say about this. 1 Peter 1, 22. Since you have in obedience to the pr- truth purified your souls for a sincere love of the brethren fervently love one another from the heart we can't love enough keep loving you say well i do love how much more can i give right just keep giving he says press on thank you <laughs> thank you he, you just gave man you gave a lot <laughs> this is needed you might have heard my lip smacking there. <laughs> I'm a dry, dry mouth today. Since you have in obedience to the truth, they proved their love. They obeyed the truth. That, that's what it's about, right? Obeying. We hear the truth and then we obey it. They did it, as Peter wrote to them. Purified their souls for a sincere love of the brethren. If you are obeying God's word, you know what? You are going to love the brethren. Love God. Love your neighbor. All the commands are summed up right there too anyway. If you love God, you will love others. And all of 1 John mentions that. Here it is. There was a sincere love that uh, the people the, 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 that were written, the elect, uh, as Peter called it in chapter 1, all the elect that were spread out all over and they had purified their souls. They were obedient to the word of God. They had a sincere love of the brethren as they uh, shared with, with each other. So the action was there. And the, the earnestness that is described there through the earnestness of the Macedonians 
measure yourself against them. Look what they did. You can see the sincerity of their love. The earnestness of others, the sincerity of your love also, that people would see how sincere the Corinthians are. He says, I want it to be the same kind of sincerity that they have. Follow their example. Prove your love. Prove your agape. So the Macedonians are our model. Back up, let's read in verse 2. That in a great ordeal of affliction, their abundance of joy... And their deep poverty overflowed in the wealth of their liberality. For I testify that according to their ability and beyond their ability, they gave of their own accord, begging us with much urging for the favor of participation and the support of the saints. And this not as we had expected, but they first gave themselves to the Lord and to us by the will of God. You notice it was all by the grace of God in verse 1. Now, brethren, we wish to make known to you the grace of God, which has been given in the churches of Macedonia. The only reason you can really give and give truly and from the heart is because God has given you His grace. His grace is enough for us to go ahead and then show the grace that in us. Very model. Macedonians, you saw all of that, right? The afflictions that they were going through, and yet they had the joy and the liberality, and, and it goes on and on. It's sought at as a privilege, as far as the Macedonians. We beg you, Paul, come on, let us give more. And he says, you guys don't have anything anyway. But he says, we beg you, come on, take this, take the rest of it. It was not an obligation. Matter of fact, giving is worship. Whether it's throughout the week, whether it's in here, it's a part of worship. Now, we move into verse 9. Our key verse of the day needs to be starred needs to be asterisked, needs to be underlined, circled. Get out your yellow highlighters. I mean, circle all around it. This verse is a diamond. It's a gem. It's outshining all the other jewels around it here as we speak. The wonder of this verse is absolutely captivating on our minds. It's very vast. It's profound And you read it, and a first grader can understand it. For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sake he became poor, so that you, through his poverty, might become rich. This is a Christological gem. Christological, what's that mean? Christ, a logical, logical study, study of Christ, Christology. This is very captivating. This is like the gospel wrapped up in this one verse. It's a treasure, isn't it? Um, think of the <laughs> infinite glory, though, that goes with this as it is very simple to understand. The simplicity is there. 
yet the infinite glory is there. It's incomprehensible. Like I say, anybody can understand it. It's very profound, very simple, but it will take an eternity to understand all that's involved in this verse. Christ is here in this verse. He's revealed. And so are we. Let's take a look at it. You guys ready? I feel like the first two verses were an introduction to this. This is our last part of this message. Macedonians, of course, we know were, I think, the great example for human beings, for the church and their giving, even though, as far as the numbers are concerned, there wasn't a lot of money that they really were able to give, but they gave more than their proportion. There's nothing higher, though, than the gift of Jesus Christ and then what he's given to us. The supreme example of giving is found right here in verse 9. It starts off with this. You know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, for you know that. Do you think the Corinthians knew all about grace? Oh, yeah. Where did they come from? From Corinth. <laughs> to Corinthianize was a terrible act. The harlotry that was in that city. The evil, the wickedness that went on in that city. Just as bad or worse than any cities that we have here in America today. That's where Corinth was at in their morality as far as the world is concerned. And the believers knew that they came from that background. They were pagans. They remembered the life that they had been in and how they were delivered. It was the grace of God. It was purely the grace of God that they could be delivered to be where they were at. They didn't have a chance. Look where they were heading, folks. Heading right into hell. The Christian knows this grace. They know it from the experience that has happened to them. I'm talking to us. Anybody who's a Christian knows this grace. You know it personally. This grace is Christ himself. It was his grace that brought all of this about. There's nothing else that motivates us than this right here. Grace abounded to us as the Son of God came in glory and majesty to this poor, pitiful earth, came in all of his holiness to a sinful world. He came in all of his righteousness. He came in all of his infinitely displaying kind of love. Came with his mercy. Came to save us. You know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ. That though he was rich. Let's look at the riches of Christ here first. He was rich. Man, I'm glad this is overflowing with water. (laughs) So you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ. He was rich, yet for your sakes he became poor. How rich was he? 
or how was he rich? How is that? Well, he was rich, and we're going to be going to this text here pretty shortly. It's Philippians chapter 2. Uh, we'll probably go to some other ones before we hit that, but that's going to be kind of our underlying text here because he existed in the form of God. Jesus, who was here humanly, existed in the form of God. We know he was rich because he said in the high priestly prayer, Lord, restore to me the glory that I had with you by your side before this world began. Restore me to that glory in heaven. That's pretty rich, isn't it? This is the glory of the second person of the Trinity, residing with the whole eternal God, the Trinity, the glory of being loved by the Father, loved by the Spirit, and returning the love of the Father and the Spirit, the perfect love that existed between the eternal Trinity. And he was rich in every way. In every way. In his person as being God. Just God himself. As being the one who created the universe. That's pretty rich, isn't it? His position as the son of God. His power that he has as sovereign. Sovereign Lord. His honor that he has as Lord. Every knee shall bow, every confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. He lacked nothing. I mean nothing. Absolutely nothing did he lack. He needed nothing. He has never needed anything. We do. We're needy people, aren't we? We need the next breath that we take. Use this as an excuse. I need some water. If I go too long, I will dry out. I need, I need shelter. I need clothes. I need, I need, I need. I, I get them from Him. I'm a needy person. There are a lot of other people that are even needier, but I need these things. You guys need Christ? Well, of course you do. We can't go around saying we lack nothing. The eternality of Christ, he's eternal. It uh, deals with the pre-existence of Christ. Christ always has been here, the second person of the Trinity before the foundations of the world, always here. This is the most critical truth of Christology that we can have. The pre-existence of Christ is an absolutely necessary, crucial aspect in understanding the person of Christ and Christianity. And I know everyone here knows that. It's good to be reminded. He's eternal. He's always been in existence. He will forever exist. He is God. Isaiah 9, verse 6. Got a few uh, texts here to support that, of course, because if you ever run into somebody who questions who God is, 
you can think of these passages, especially who Jesus is. Everybody knows this at Christmas time, but it's for all the time. For a child we will be born to us, a son will be given to us. Many songs use that line. The government will rest on his shoulders and his name will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Eternal Father, Prince of Peace. So he has a name called Wonderful Counselor. He's mighty God. And the next one, you probably have a little trouble with it. You say, how can the second person of the Trinity, Jesus, be called eternal Father because the Son is not the Father? Well, that's true. The Son is not the Father. And there's only one God, but there are three persons in God. It says, this is about Jesus. A child will be born. Son will be given. Here's his, or his names, uh, eternal Father. And what we're talking about there is that he is the... God of eternity. And so that should settle us there. It shouldn't make us squeamish. It's speaking of Christ. He is the God of eternity. So is the Father. So is the Holy Spirit. There he's speaking about the Son. So if somebody ever asks you that, you can say, you know, he is the begetter. He is the creator. Uh, he's before creation. He's the eternal God. Prince of Peace. So is another one. So we see that this eternality, this preexistence of Christ just didn't happen whenever he became incarnate. It starts with his preexistence. So we go to John eight fifty eight. Jesus is speaking, says some things that uh, really are controversial. Jesus does that quite frequently, doesn't he? So do Christians and, of course... Um, he says in verse 56, Your father Abraham rejoiced to see my day, and, and he saw it and was glad. Saw it from afar, Abraham did. He's speaking of the, the tense that goes back. He's talking about now. That means Jesus is quite old. So their next question is, So the Jews said to him, You're not yet 50 years old. And have you seen Abraham? Jesus said to them, truly, truly, I say to you, before Abraham was born, two words, I am. The self-existent one. He said, Yahweh. It's me. I am. I, you know what he's saying there? I am God. Before He's pre-existent. He's eternal. So that makes a great impression. John 17, 5, his great high priestly prayer, as he says to the Father the night before his crucifixion the next day, Now, Father, glorify me together with yourself, with the glory which I had with you before the world was. The glory that he had, restore me to that like I had before, even before this creation. Self-existent one. The one that's always been. You know what? If that be the case, he owns everything. He owns not only the... What? All those cattle on a thousand hills? or A thousand cattle on one hill? <laughs> the Lord Jesus owns it all. 
had this architectural construction, this scheme, this universe out. He plotted the, the ages and all the things that were going to happen in his plan. Sovereign God does that. And even the things that are transpiring right now, he's in charge of that. He owns it. He's the eternal God. All these things were in the mind of the eternal God. You can't even define eternal. Makes your mind spin, doesn't it? By the way, he knows that if you were late to this worship service this morning, it was all known by the Lord. (laughs) Just laugh, it's okay, go on. Some came here early and he knows that too. That's all known to the Lord. No offense. You guys know, there's no offense. I'm glad you're here. Uh, just be on time next time. <laughs> oh, that was kind of like a, a punch with a, maybe a little bit of a pillow on it, right? Now, that was the riches of Christ. I mean, how, how far can you go with, with that, right? I mean, he owns it all. I mean, he created us. He doesn't need anything. Okay, let's go to the poverty of Christ. What in the world does that mean? tell you first of all what it does not mean I think it's obvious um, our 2 Corinthians 8 9 text here says nothing about Jesus and his economic situation as it's speaking about poor it says nothing about his material condition in this world although there are a lot of discussions on that and then it brings emotions up to people and people think about the circumstances that as he lived in this life that he was here on earth and matter of fact it starts bringing uh, pity uh, on on him and and how he was brought to this earth and how he had to live it and all the way to the cross uh, it can bring feelings of guilt on on us can it um, the vivid accounts of the straw where he's laid in the in the manger it's really a place for feeding the, the cattle and the animals or a turtle dove that's offered at uh, his dedication that's how poor they showed they were. They'd be more than a turtle dove for uh, many other people. Or his itinerant life that he traveled all over the place, didn't have a place to lay his head as, uh, as it goes. And the cross wasn't his own as he lived here. The tomb wasn't even his own, was it? It's not his own tomb. Actually, in actuality, yes, it was. <laughs> Little did they know it. Uh, this uh, economic situation here really has nothing to do with this kind of verse, though, what he went through. It has everything um, to um, do, though, with the redemption and and what that means. So we're going to look at what it does mean. Uh, He became poor. He left the glory of his heavenly throne to become part of this wicked, rebellious race of people that fell in the garden and with Adam and Eve. And people have spurned God's word ever since. They trampled on God's word and God's glory. It's what man does. Man does that without any problem at all because that's his nature. And that's the kind of people he came to. That includes us. He came for us. He came poor can you imagine what he left to come here in this sin infested diseased world to live here for 30 plus years to do more than just live 
to die. The infinite, transcendent majesty of Jesus Christ, the second person of the Trinity, became poor, condescended to us. And you have to marvel every time you read the story of Christ coming to us. Do you marvel about it? You always will. To realize that we couldn't add anything to him coming here. We couldn't help him. He took on flesh. We, we could not improve his lot. He didn't come here to make himself better. To add to his worth. That's the reason he had the church. So we could add to his worth. Now that's a modern, I think, a modern theology today. To kind of add to the worth of Christ. Because look at us and how important we are. The incarnation. This is the heart of this verse 9. He took on flesh. Carnate. Chili con carne. Carne is flesh. Incarnate is in the flesh. It never been in the flesh except for there were some pre-birth uh, days in the sense of... God appeared as Christ uh, or as the angel of the Lord uh, on occasion in the Old Testament. But that was not the incarnate Christ that was born to woman. As we go to uh, Galatians 4.4, right after 2 Corinthians, you have Galatians, and it gives a high doctrinal verse there for us. But when the fullness of the time came, when it was set out the way that God had meant it to be at that specific time, God sent forth his son, born of a woman, born under the law. So that he might redeem those who were under the law. That's us. Tobias. That's the reason he came here. Um, James Usher says this about the incarnation. It's the highest pitch of God's wisdom, God's goodness, God's power, God's glory. The highest pitch. You're at the height of the greatness of who God is. The greatest wonder, as Mark Jones puts it. It's the incarnation is God's greatest wonder. One that no creature could have ever imagined. No man could imagine this plan. God himself could not perform a more difficult and glorious work. It has justly been called the miracle of all miracles. Incarnation from his birth, life, and then his death. Jonathan Edwards called it the admirable conjunction of diverse excellencies. You like that? I got to say that again. The admirable conjunction of diverse excellencies. The person of Christ. Or in Revelation 4 and 5, the lion and the lamb. God. Man. How? No human could ever think of that. John 1, 14 John 1, in the beginning was the Word, the Word was with God, the Word was God. John 1, 14, the Word became flesh and dwelt among us. 
What a wonder. John Murray says this about this incarnation. It is high and heavenly doctrine. That's where we're at right now, high and heavenly doctrine. And for that reason of little appeal to dull minds and darkened hearts, dull minds and darkened hearts can't understand this. It sounds ridiculous. A man, a God coming to earth, becoming a man, it offends them highly. He says, it is a mystery that angels desire to look into. But it is also the delight of enlightened and humble souls. That's us. They love to explore the mysteries which bespeak the glories of their Redeemer. What we're going to do now is we are going to look into this mystery a little bit deeper deeper if we can as we get ready to wrap this up. It's called the kenosis. A high doctrinal term, it's actually a Greek term that's found in Philippians 2. It's, it's the emptying of Christ. The emptying of Christ. Uh, turn to Philippians 2, verse 6 and 7. This is the kenosis. He first tells them in verse 5, Have this attitude in yourselves, which is also in Christ Jesus. You have the attitude of Christ. What did Christ do? Well, this is... Humiliation. This is humbling. It's the epitome of humility. Who, although he existed in the form of God, did not regard equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself, taking the form of a bondservant and being made in the likeness of men. What a text. The kenosis. First part underneath that, I'm going to make it real quick. It's, it's the church's formulation. It's there scripturally. He is God. He is man. He's 100% God. He's 100% man. The church had to formulate that because there were all sorts of theories and actually it was heresies that came out. And that's why you have early church history to know what did they do about that what would you have done about it whenever people saying yeah but he couldn't have been man if he's God so really he was just a man he really wasn't God or he's God and he didn't really become man you know and they came up with all sorts of different ideas and those people were booted out of the church if they continued to believe that and that's the way it should be that's cultic because that goes against the very grain of who Christ is you can't have that residing along so that's why I'm a I like to be a student of church history and to know why they had, they came up with those creeds that we believe. Why did they come up with confessions of faith? Well, that was a reason because false teaching comes in, comes in very easily. And if we say, well, here's what we believe, and you can say, this is it. Let's go to this scripture and see this, you know. It's very important. Second one now is the biblical kenosis. This is starting with the glory of the eternal Son. Because in verse 6 of Philippians 2, it says, Who although he existed in the form of God, 
He existed, huparkon, and that is dealing with eternal preexistence. We just mentioned it a while ago, and it's in the form of God in morphe theu. Morphe form theu theos God, the form of God. No human, would you say this, that no human could be in the form of God? Only God can be in the form of God. Some people think they can take the form of God, but that cannot happen. Only God himself can exist in the form of God. Only God himself can manifest all the perfections of God. Now, that's the glory of the eternal Son. He existed in the form of God. We could go on and on with that. We're going to move to the next one. The humility of the eternal Son. His humility. The kenosis is the emptying himself. You can say, what does that mean? Does it mean then that Jesus gave up his godhood while he was human? Put that out of your mind right now. We'll save time. Start right with right there. He never gave up his godhood. He was, he's always been God. It's not by subtracting from his divine nature, but by adding a complete human nature. This is very helpful. This is um, one of the seminar teachings that was done at, um, at the conference, and it was dealing with this kenosis. Course, and, of course, he dealt with the church history and then showed all the scripture that deals with these coordinating passages. And what it came down to is very helpful in seeing how he uh, presented this. And he said what it does is that he is still God, has the God nature, but he adds the human nature. It's not his emptying himself of his divine attributes. Some could say, well, he must have dismissed his glory and his power and all the things that go with who he was then. Uh, So you become poor usually by what? By subtracting. You take away, right? Well, he became poor by adding, by adding on this human incarnate state. In him, all the fullness of Godhood dwells. Look in Colossians 2.9. Colossians 2.9. For in him, all the fullness of deity dwells in bodily form. So whenever he became incarnate, all the deity was right there. Whenever he was crucified and then resurrected, he ascended also in bodily form. What is Jesus, what does he look like now? Well, I don't know what he looks like. One day I'll see him as he is, but whatever he is now is what he's going to look like when we see him. He is in a body. That's where a lot of people would be offended. He resurrected. He ascended. He dwells in bodily form. And he's still 
spirit. He's still God, but he's also man. And he represents man even today, not only at the cross, but also interceding at the throne room for us. Now, is that staggering? To us, we've heard it over and over again, but think about it. It's very basic, but it's so profound. So what did he do to, I guess you could say, is there a limitation of him, voluntarily uh, limiting? I guess you could say that in, in a sense. Uh, it's really hard to put it into to human terms, but um, he exists in the form of God, did not regard equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself. So it was not by giving up his godhood, he's, right? He's not giving that up. Um, he's not giving up any of his attributes. He did not cease in being rich in his divine being. Still the, the same God. John Murray said uh, about this, I think that is very helpful here. Um, he did not become poor by ceasing to be what he was. He didn't become poor because he now ceased to be God, right? But he became poor by becoming what he was not. He became poor by addition, not subtraction. He added man to manhood to his immutable, unchanging nature of being the eternal God. That is miraculous, isn't it? That's something only God can do. John Calvin said this. It's pretty helpful too. Christ indeed could not divest himself of Godhead. That means get rid of it, right? He couldn't do that. But he kept it concealed for a time. That it might not be seen under the weakness of the flesh. He laid aside his glory in the view of men, not by lessening it, but by concealing it. He hid, concealed his glory and those grand, grand attributes that only God can do and be. Amazing. It, he did appear on the Mount of Transfiguration to Peter, James, and John. The Mount of Transfiguration where he, it's like he peeled back his flesh and they saw some of his glory. Say, Lord, Peter says, what? Let's make tents and stay here. Because they'd seen the glory. That's what we thought out there at, at the conference all that week. And somebody even said that. Let's just pitch tents and let's just stay here, brothers. <laughs> We had to come back to Jefferson City, Missouri. You know what? It's nice to come back to Jefferson City, Missouri, though. It's nice here. It's nice. As a matter of fact, it's nice to visit, but this is home. But I'll tell you what, it was really valuable in that sense. He concealed his glory in that sense. There were times that he would bring out in his miracle working that he would do it. It was only because of the Father he did all things according to the Father's timing. So he did do things. He did show his attributes. The only thing is, the people that didn't want to see it 
didn't see it. The people that didn't want to hear, didn't hear. He who has ears, let him hear. We say that today. Do you have ears? Do you really want to hear this, what this is all about? Hear, listen, right? That's what Jesus said. Well, the Pharisees never heard it. The religious people never heard it. But there were people who were the sheep who heard it. They recognized his call to them and they responded. They saw some glory. The apostles saw his glory in John 1.14. We beheld his glory. There were things that they actually saw. They saw the resurrected Jesus Christ. Herman Babnick says, He laid aside the divine majesty and glory, concealed it behind the form of a servant in which he went about on earth. For the most part, people saw him as nobody special. As a whole, Israel did not receive him. Some did, but as a whole, they didn't. Well, we have seen what it's what it means when it says he was rich and he became poor, right? He concealed that mighty glory, that, oh, all that greatness of who he is. Even though it did appear, of course, there was a resurrection, all those things. There's a purpose dealing with this. Matter of fact, in Philippians 2 7, he emptied himself, taking on a form of a bondservant, a slave, being made in the likeness of men, being found in appearance as a man. He humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. The death on the cross, that's for us. We go to our 2 Corinthians 8 9 now when we finish this up. Here's the purpose he became poor so that you, through his poverty, might become rich. The purpose of Christ is that we might become rich. His poverty zeroes in on that phrase, for your sake. For your sake, he took on that incarnation. And kind of concealed who he really was. We are ones who have been saved by grace, but we had that nature of a sinner. Not only practice sin, but even after his saving grace, we still battle with sin, don't we? And he makes us rich for our sakes. His poverty ensured our riches. Christ went from riches to rags. What's the next statement? We went from rags to riches. Nice to grasp that because we have an eternal inheritance. Far outweighs anything that we can have as far as resources, physical resources, and that including homes and cars and uh, money to buy with, all the food that we would ever want. This richness that he's really involving here is not even speaking of financial aspects. It's 
an inheritance that far ways outweighs that. The resources of, of, of a hundred billionaires, all the riches that they could give you, and it would never even make a dent in the riches that he has given us. Um, in Second Corinthians, just Second Corinthians alone, there are no less than eight of these mentioned in chapter one, verse twenty-two. Second Corinthians one twenty two, speaking of Christ and us being anointed, who also sealed us and gave us the Spirit in our hearts as a pledge, a down payment, the Holy Spirit. That's pretty rich. The Holy Spirit lives in us. Is that pretty rich? God lives in us. We are temples of the Holy Spirit. Wow. Chapter 4, verse 16. You say, well, that's dealing with eternity. What about now? Therefore, we do not lose heart, but though our outer man is decaying right now, yet our inner man is being renewed, what? Day by day by day by day. Day by day. Every day. Continually, constantly, our inner man is being renewed. If you're studying, reading the Word of God, contemplating on Him, praying, fellowshipping, you are being renewed. Because just like ourselves, we have dead cells in our physical body. Actually, the eternal things that build up are for eternity. The thing is, our mind can forget. We need to be renewed, as Romans 12, 1 and 2 speaks about. And then in chapter 4, 18... Chapter 4, verse 18. While we look not the things which are seen, but the things which are not seen, for the things which are seen are temporal, but the things which are not seen are, what? Eternal. Um, an eternal weight of glory as uh, what we have um, seen. Eternal weight of glory, as it says in verse 17. Um, chapter 5, verse 1. For we know that, that if the earthly tent, which is our house, is torn down, we have a building from God, a house not made with hands, eternal in the heavens. We know where we're going. We know it's for eternity. We have a house there. We have a place. We have a home there. This is just temporal here. It's nothing compared to that. Uh, how about chapter 5, verse 8? How rich are we? For we are of good courage, I say, and prefer rather to be absent from the Lord and to be at home with the Lord. That's unending fellowship with Christ. Never has to end. We end our message here. We end the, the, our time of worship. And most of us go on home and that's, that's it for the day. But in eternity, our fellowship never ends. It just goes on and on, and we never get tired. Verse 21 of chapter 5, verse 18 says, And all these things are from God who reconciled us to himself through Christ. So we have been reconciled. And now, verse 21, He made him who knew no sin to be sin on our behalf so that we might become the righteousness 
of God in Christ. Where does he find the righteousness? In Christ. And if you're in Christ, you are righteous. We've already been given that. Certainly, we, we, we know materially, yes, he has blessed us. I believe he has made us rich in the material things. But it goes far beyond that, doesn't it? Give him thanks and glory because of that. The poorest Christian living in slums in, in Brazil is richer than any billionaire. If that billionaire is not a Christian, richer than a billionaire. How much of the wealth will the billionaires leave behind? All of it. What about us? Our riches go right on into heaven. Most of them are already there. But what we have built here, whatever is sent ahead, if we have given in ministry our lives and everything and, and even the money to it there, it lasts for eternity. Whatever we do that uh, is part of the kingdom, through his poverty we become rich. Of course, right now he is Lord, right? He's already risen. He defeated the enemy. The, the effect of contemplating the grace of Christ in his humiliation, that helps us turn our priorities toward faithfulness in Christ, doesn't it? To use things that he's given for his glory, for his purpose. Such grace has been shown to us. We don't want to cling to the material things. Hold on loosely to those things. Those really are... They get us by here. They're, they're instruments. They're tools. They're vehicles to get us where we want, where we need to be. But don't focus our lives on that. Focus on this kingdom and this glory, and you'll see how rich you really are. Only grace can loosen the grip that we have here in America because of materialistic society at its supreme Hold on loosely. Hold on loosely to these things. We want to be liberated into the depths of joy, don't we? Remember the Macedonians? They were in the depths of joy. Satisfied in Christ. What's the chief end of man to glorify God and enjoy Him forever? How do you do that? How do you glorify God? Put it in one simple sentence. To be content with Christ to be content where he's put you. How does this affect you? How does it affect our grace giving? How does it affect all of our disciplines in the Christian life? Do we consider Christ's condescension on this earth, the humiliation that he took on? How do we use that to decide the gift we offer to the Lord's work? Do we think and do we reason, do we believe that we are eternally rich and Christ continues to provide? Let's pray. Father, thank you for your amazing truth of the incarnation. Christ, who is rich, became poor for our sakes that we would become rich. And as we've looked at this rich treasure just these things, and then realize we have are going to inherit 
all things that are Christ. We are co-heirs with Jesus Christ. That is incredible. That's how rich we really are. Help us to realize that more and more as we go through this daily life, a daily grind sometimes, and help us to realize what this is all about and to rejoice. In your Son's name, as we have glorified Him this morning, we pray. Amen. Hey, we thank you once again for joining us. We pray that this message would serve to edify you. And we say goodbye until next time. May the Lord bless you and keep you and make His face shine upon you. Until next time.